Okay, buddy. Say hello. Son? Moxie? This is Moxie. And welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And today I'm joined, but with our special guest, Moxie, the Australian Shepherd and Poodle, 18-month pseudo-puppy, almost-grown man. Buddy, how do you like the show? Okay. Okay, bud. Yes, you can go down. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. So, thank you for joining us on today's show. This is one of the last episodes from Palm Beach, Florida. The Palm Beach Winter Office of Applico, unfortunately, is, uh, is going to start to wind down, and then I'll have to head back to New York. So a couple topics for today's show is about the Lending Club Radius Bank acquisition for $185 million. Uh, yesterday, I spoke about the uh, Morgan Stanley E-Trade deal and how we're just going to continue to see more commoditization, kind of a race to a bottom with what fintechs are, are, are bringing to the traditional incumbents. The Lending Club Radius Bank deal is fantastic. I think it's a genius move on their part. And it, it's, a, it's a relatively small deal. I mean, when we look at Lending Club's market cap here, um, they're at a billion dollars. If you look at the past five years, however, uh, their stock price used to be almost $100 a share. They used to be $100 a share. Now they're at basically $11 a share. And the story of Lending Club is that it actually you know, started out as peer-to-peer -peer lending. And then it started to move from peer-to-peer -peer lending, which is still available, but you know a lot of it is really uh, a majority of their lending is coming from large, uh, a few large institutions. So it's kind of lost some of that supply-side network effect. It's become more of kind of an institutional lender. And so what this Radius Bank deal is, this is a return to a true lending marketplace model, but kind of like version 2.0 lending marketplace, right? You kind of saw a lot of version 1.0 lending marketplaces uh, where they were peer to peer. Lending Club was in plat when it, you know, when it, when it had the... Um, the right uh, market cap requirements. Now it doesn't. But Lending Tree would be another example of a 1.0 lending marketplace. Lending Tree is more of a referral engine than it is going end to end on actually having a, a producer as a lender and delivering that money, those monies to the borrower, right? So Lending Club is an end to end lending marketplace, but, you know, less on the marketplace side over the past few years. Uh, lending Tree, more of a referral engine. Lending Tree really isn't going end to end. You, you go there and they connect you to uh, potential lenders, and then Lending Tree gets basically a referral fee for that. Both of these are kind of like Lending Marketplace 1.0. Enter Lending Marketplace 2.0. This Radius Bank acquisition, what is it doing for uh, Lending Club? So they're getting a couple things. They're getting they're getting a bank, a banking license. So now when you get a loan through Lending Club, you're gonna get a checking account. And now when that loan is when when you receive those monies for that loan, those monies are gonna be probably deposited into your checking your lending club checking account. And so this is all automatically going to save fees 
for Lending Club to just keep the banking relationship inside of their own, um, you know, inside of their own business. And so they've got a $40 million reduction in bank fees and funding costs. Boom, right off the bat. Okay. In terms of synergies of, of buying this company. The real value add here, though, is about the APIs and banking as a service business of Radius Bank. So Lending Club's long-term vision is to become what it calls a marketplace bank. That means pursuing a platform strategy, ding, 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 attracting both buyers and sellers, borrowers and savers being consumers, and lenders and investors being producers, and providing transaction integration and processing capability. With Radius Bank's APIs and existing fintech relationships, Lending Club takes a big step forward towards becoming a multi-line platform. What this is saying is that there are a myriad of fintech lenders. We've covered fintech lenders and fintechs on the show many, many, many times. Fintech lenders have a big customer cost of customer acquisition problem. How do they, how do they get to scale um, in a cost-effective manner? And if you look at their CAC to LTV ratios, they're all out of whack. Ideally, you have at least a three to one uh, LTV to CAC ratio, right? So, Fintech lenders have a problem of getting scale. Fintech lenders can make money lending to a, a lot of borrowers that traditional banks would never be able to lend to. Lending Club included, because Lending Club is is really more of an institutional lender uh, today than it, than it is kind of a peer-to-peer lending marketplace as, as it kind of used to be, right? So um, if you were to look at any traditional bank and probably lending club for this is similarly in this example, and you say, how many personal lenders and small businesses, you traditional bank and you lending club, are you turning down? And I would be willing to bet that probably at least 30 to 50% of those personal loans or small business loans that the bank is turning away could be fulfilled successfully, profitably, by a third-party fintech lender, because the third-party fintech lender is going to be more innovative, use different data sets, and their underwriting model and their underwriting restrictions are going to be more flexible for them to extend credit to people that a institutional lender is, is, is not going to feel comfortable doing. So what Lending Club has done is they have turned their competitors, fintech lenders, into their partners, into their producers, into saying, hey, I'm going to let you, fintech lender, lend to borrowers that we can't lend to. And I'm going to let you, fintech lender, compete on price, loan amount, term, right? What's the interest rate that you're going to provide to the borrower? And that's what the borrower is going to make a decision on, right? They want to get a, the, a loan over the right term for the right amount at the best price. So now by creating a marketplace, I can drive and I can force, you know, who's going to win the buy box, right? Just on Amazon marketplace, all the third party sellers are competing for the buy box. Who presents the best price gets to win the buy box. So all of these fintech lenders, same thing. Who wins that, that optimal buy box for the borrower? And then the borrower clicks, yep, I'll take that loan. But the role of a lender is commoditized. Do I really care who the lender is? No, I just want to make sure I'm getting my money at the right rates and uh, you know, and that it's through a trustworthy organization. And that's what the platform is going to do, the Lending Club platform. 
Lending Club with this checking account capability is now going to be able to service and maintain the loan on behalf of fintech lenders. Fintech lenders are good at lending money, but they aren't really good at collections and repayments. There's a lot of infrastructure that goes into that. So the platform is going to be able to go end to end. This is a lending marketplace 2.0. The Lending Club business model, they haven't released this yet, but if I was to guess... Lending Club could take an origination fee and the fintech lender won't get an an origination fee, but they can earn their money on the interest. But still, compared to the CAC that a fintech lender is paying to acquire every new customer, this is going to be way cheaper for them to not take an origination fee than it would be for them to pay for for their other customer acquisition channels that they're using today. So it's a win-win-win for everyone. It's a win for the cust- for the borrower because they're going to get arguably the best rates with fintech lenders competing over the borrower. Not to mention, you're going to have the most streamlined lending application process because now the platform is going to be able to say you have one application and now you get multiple quotes, multiple offers from multiple lenders. But they're not going to hit your credit five different times, right? One application, one credit ping, Boom, the platform vouches that the information is legit and then passes on that credibility to the producers, to the fintech lenders. The platform keeps the origination fee. The fintech lenders provide their quotes. The best option gets chosen by the borrower. The fintech lender makes money on the interest payments. And the platform could even take like a 1% servicing fee every year to facilitate all of the repayments and to handle collections if it goes down that route, right? This is a win-win-win. And this is what it really nets out to. Is lending a winner-take-all market? And the answer is absolutely. I think you're going to be able to see vertical-specific lending market marketplaces just like we're seeing in B2C and in B2B, product marketplaces. I think you're going to be able to see lending marketplaces be built around personal loans, small, medium-sized business loans, mortgages. If you actually look to Europe, there's actually a number of lending marketplace kind of startups that are vertical specific around mortgages or auto loans or personal loans. We're going to start to see the same thing in the United States and large traditional incumbent banks better understand that where they make a majority of their revenue, it's called interest marketplaces are coming for that and they're coming for it in a big way and you don't need hundreds of banks lending money. It's not a convenient process. Borrowers don't get the best deals and the best rates and the marketplace solves for all of this and it's coming. And I think Lending Club is going to lead the charge. The good thing for banks is that they have a lot more scale than Lending Club has. Right, Lending Club, their business has shrunk over the years from hundred something dollars a share now to about eleven dollars a share. So banks still have a lot more scale. That if they started to move into this space, if they, there's there are some pretty good acquisition targets that they could use to um, immediately take latent demand, the thirty to fifty percent of customers that they are turning down today, and offer them an alternative model, a lending marketplace model. We will see where this nets out. So um, Symphony is another good example. Yesterday we were talking about a great example of um, the incumbent banks coming together to launch Zelle, the payment platform. So the origination story around Symphony, Bloomberg was caught red-handed on using the Bloomberg terminal. The Bloomberg reporters were basically snooping on what Goldman traders were trading on the Bloomberg terminal. Big no-no. So in response... 
Goldman put together a consortium. They pulled together 14 of the world's biggest financial services firms and bought this company called Perzo Inc., instant messaging software company. And they formed a new technology company that aims to change the way traders communicate. So Goldman Sachs led this consortium. They collectively invested $66 million into the venture called Symphony Communications. And then Symphony in turn acquired Perzo, this two-year-old startup, uh, which was started by David Gurl. Now, um, Goldman contributed its in-house messaging developments to the new company, and Girl is now the CEO of Symphony. So Symphony has raised $460 million since that. You know, so they got the demand and the usage from all these 14 banks that seeded it. But they just got another um, they just got another hundred plus million dollars with Standard Chartered and some other investors. But they have um, you know, all the who's who here having invested all the way back into the Series A. You can see some of these initial investors. Now you have Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Deutsche, HSBC. I mean, you have all the major players. So this is a great example of big banks coming together, basically creating a consortium, a JV, buying a startup, a platform startup around communication and messaging when it comes to trading. And now they're all having their traders use this amongst themselves. This is one of, I'd say, probably the strongest platform dynamics that Bloomberg has. Bloomberg is one of the largest platform conglomerates in the world, private company. The trading services in Bloomberg, there's no platform dynamic there. But the communication and collaboration, that's a very strong platform dynamic that they have. The media business, linear business, right? They also have a, a, a development platform in Bloomberg where you can now uh, sell data and sell software that is built on top of the Bloomberg terminal. So data that complements the data in the Bloomberg terminal and software that complements the usage of the Bloomberg terminal. So they, but that was a secondary platform dynamic. Really the strongest platform dynamic in Bloomberg is this, it's the communication and the um, collaboration dynamic. So I think, you know, we've covered the Refinitiv LSE story, LSE taking over Refinitiv, which is a data company to try and rival Bloomberg. And I think taking over something like Symphony would be a great way to tap into that collaboration uh, platform dynamic that I think the LSE is really going to need if they're really going to be able to rival Bloomberg uh, and put up a fight against Bloomberg. So we've covered here other examples of traditional businesses trying to move into the platform arena, Target being one of those where Target had announced, announced its marketplace about a year ago. And so this was a really good story covering that progress to date. We had critiqued Target as, as having a more curated marketplace approach and them not moving fast enough. Basically, we found out here is Target was an invite-only marketplace. They got 109 merchants and 165,000 products. So right away, this reads to me that they started top-down, not bottom-up. That's rule number one. You need to start bottom-up in terms of capturing supply and very often demand. So they went to large merchants to get 165,000 products. February 25th, 2019, they launched this called Target Plus. It started with 30 merchants and 60,000 products. That's a lot of products, right, from each merchant. And they probably were focusing on more complementary products that they were selling here. 
Here's a graph of the sellers. It's not an impressive graph. Target has a lot of e-commerce demand, but when you are not, when you are slowly opening up to supply, it's never going to work. We talk a lot about how Doug McMillan two earnings calls ago, Q3 of 2019, CEO of Walmart said we added 10 million products in the first nine months of 2019. 9.5 million of those products coming from third-party sellers. And Doug McMillan was saying that they weren't moving fast enough and they needed to move much faster. So for 9.5 million products in nine months, whereas Target adds 165,000 products in a year, it's pretty easy to see. Now, Target has a lot of demand that they could tap into and that, that a lot of sellers would probably be interested in, but they aren't being open enough and being aggressive enough to go and acquire third-party sellers and really open up on the supply side of the network. That is the challenge. So this really isn't anything about execution. This is a strategy miss. That's what this is. And then wanting to be too, having too much control over what goes in and out of the marketplace. This is a probably at the executive level, an executive issue in terms of really opening up the supply side of the business. Not really an execution. This is a strategy problem. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining us. And I will talk to you tomorrow.